Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Okay, so here's the deal. I want us to do, before we, before we jump into the verses here this morning, again, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, we're basically halfway through the Sermon on the Mount here this morning. And so it's time for us to do a little Sermon on the Mount halftime uh, gut check here, okay? In Matthew, in, in chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus said, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, when, when we read that, if you're paying attention to that, if you read words in Scripture, when Jesus, and those are the red letters, as Jesus saying that, you should start to go, whoa. But Jesus just said, I'm supposed to be perfect as my Father in heaven is, is perfect. And, and you might even think like, well, shoot, how in the world am I going to do that? I've never been perfect. I've never done anything perfectly. You may even be inclined to think, when you read a passage of Scripture like that, you may be inclined to think, well, forget it. There's no way I can do that. But the fact is, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus' longest recorded teaching in Scripture is about a kingdom ethic. It teaches us what God's standard is and how those who want to be in right standing with God should seek to live their life. And throughout it, we're challenged on our righteousness. And that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees if we want to get into heaven. And so that means that it's more than just keeping the law. It's more than just religious routine. We don't get to simply say it's too hard and then disregard it. No, we get to as children of God, which we just sang about. We sing these songs and we think, oh, this is wonderful. I'm a child of God. Well, what does it mean to be a child of God? There's a responsibility that comes along with that. As we seek to be children of God, we must elevate our living to the standard worthy of His calling that He's placed upon our life. Now, am I suggesting that we need to be striving to be some sort of perfect Christian? Well, Yes and no. Listen, we praise Him for grace. Amen? And and for mercy and for forgiveness because we know we do fall short. We praise Him for His grace because it's not about works that save you, okay? This isn't about works-based salvation. We praise Him for grace and mercy and forgiveness because we need it. But the thing is, is that the Sermon on the Mount shows a standard. And like the law... It also reveals that we fall short of that standard. Like Paul said, the law was a a schoolmaster. It was a tutor. It it revealed how imperfect I am. And so it reveals that we fall short of that standard, and it causes us to rejoice all the more in the righteousness of Christ, which has become our righteousness. As Paul writes in Romans in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So praise God for that. It's His righteousness that is upon us. His righteousness is upon us. We praise Him and thank Him for that. But here's what we need to understand. It's not cheap grace. And that we just sin and we say, oh well, and we keep sinning. And we just go, I'm, I'm I'm not perfect. Praise God for His grace. The question must be asked, am I striving to be better? To be more like Him? To take seriously His teachings? 
to repent when we screw up, when we mess up, when we fail to say, Lord, I don't want that to be in my life anymore. I don't, I don't want to do that anymore, Lord. I want to grow. I want to mature. I want to become holier. I want to become more like you. I want my life to be for your glory. You know, it, it's one thing for someone to say, you know, I, I, I was a sinner, the worst. This is the, the worst of, of sinners, and, and Christ saved me, and, and glory to God. And, and, and we love that testimony, and I mean, that's all of our testimony. For those that have come to Christ, we can look at who we were and who we are now, but we should also be desiring that who we are now is continually different because it's another thing for people to say, oh, you know, praise God that he's just so forgiving and so gracious because I just keep screwing up and I'm just grateful that he's there for me. And, and listen, he is. I'm not suggesting that God isn't. But when we just get stuck in that pattern, what that amounts to is a wasted life. We're called to grow and to mature and to be transformed. And so friends, please understand me clearly. This is not, as I, as I said earlier, about works for the sake of earning something. But this is about if we rightly understand what God has done for us, well then we do want to work for him. We do want our lives to better reflect who he is and what he's done. I was reading recently an excerpt in the book uh, Prodigal God by Tim Keller of an interaction that he had with someone where he writes this. He says that he was speaking to this woman and, and he asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace, which is what we've received from God. And she replied something like this, he says, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there is nothing that he cannot ask of me. Do you understand that? Friends, I fear there are times when we are far too quick to say it's good enough. Praise God for his grace. In this world of posting the best aspects of your life on Facebook and passing it off as a consistent picture of who you are, it leaves, as we know, others then working to achieve something that may not be true as we look around at other people and compare our lives to other people. And then in response to that, there's countless books and opinions and, and articles and everything else about, listen, take it easy on yourself. Okay, don't compare your life with others. Don't beat yourself up if you don't achieve what they achieve. And listen, those things are true. That's true. But the sad part is we are so quick to compare our lives against others, which is on the horizontal and then not so quick to look at God on the vertical and say, Lord, what do you want my life to look like? I can spend my life in this vicious cycle of comparison with other people, and I should be like that, and I shouldn't be like that, and make me feel better about myself, and all these things to encourage one another, instead of spending time going, Lord, what do you want my life to look like? And what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount is, here's what the standard looks like. And guess what? He says it's not about it being on display necessarily for others. Yes, he wants others to see their, your good works that they might glorify your Father in heaven, but in terms of your prayer life and uh, the different values that you hold on to and, and, and charitable giving and the things we considered last week, he says, do those things with me. Let me work in your life. Let me reward you. Let me show you. He says, this is about you and me. He says, I want to elevate your life. He says, I want more from you and for you. 
And that's pretty awesome, guys. But we serve a God in heaven who says, I want, I want more from you, but with that, I also want more for you. I want more for your life. I want to show you what life lived for me looks like, and, and I'll help you with this. And you know, sometimes we in our personal circles, someone confesses, hey, I'm struggling with this, or I'm struggling with that, and, and what happens oftentimes? Be honest. In our tendency, in our well-intentioned tendency to encourage other people, we go, oh, hey, it's okay. It's okay. Don't beat yourself up. Don't be so hard on yourself. There's grace for that. And listen, that's true, okay? I'm not trying to suggest that there's not grace. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad this morning. But maybe there are times when someone says, you know, hey, I struggle with this, or I'm, I, I, this is an area I just keep failing in, and, and maybe sometimes we should go, yeah, you're right. Maybe you should get better. Maybe you should do that differently. Maybe we should sometimes say, is the Lord convicting you on that? Instead of being quick to, to try and sort of pacify one another, maybe we should ask the question, well, have you gone to the Lord with that? Is the Lord convicting you? Is that the Holy Spirit saying this, this should be different in your life? That God wants you to grow in this area? That he wants more for you in that area of your life? Does he want to transform you there for his glory? So you can say then, I was once this way, but now I'm not anymore, praise God. You know, in any job or sport or hobby, we work to get better. We want to improve, to set goals. And, and listen, I'm not suggesting here that we should make our faith some sort of performance-driven competition, but sadly, often, then in our walks with God, we are so quick to just say, well, hey, it's okay. And in some respects, then celebrate mediocrity. And I'm not saying again, and I've repeated this a million times, and I'll keep saying it because we, I want us to understand. I'm not saying there's not room for grace. But I think sadly, sometimes we seek after too much the input and validation of men, mankind, instead of really taking it to the Lord and asking the Lord, what is it that you want for my life, Lord? How do you want it to look different? How do you want it to change? So that when a well-intentioned brother or sister does say, hey, it's okay, don't be too hard on yourself, that you have the confidence to respond to them having heard from the Lord and to say, no, it's not okay. I want to be different. And praise God, he's going to do this work in me. He's convicted me. He's challenged me on this. He wants this part of my life. Would you help me then in that, brother or sister? Would you hold me accountable to that? Church, do you get that this morning? He does want more from you and for you. And it's not a competition on social media. It's not about comparison with other people. It's between you and him. And you know what? When we do this, it does lead to glory. There are rewards. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us here, that it is sweet and it's pure and it's awesome when he's doing a work in your life and changing who you are and making you better and making you more like him and it's for his glory and ultimately in eternity it leads to rewards. We must take the challenges of the Sermon on the Mount seriously and not dismiss them because they are too lofty. We rejoice that Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. And in response to that, and in, respo in response to that amazing gift, we say, Lord, change my life. Make me different. And so now we get to this point where we've seen the Beatitudes, which really should prompt humility. And we, we've been challenged on being salt and light in our culture. And then we begin to look at the comparisons between how the world sees things versus how Christ sees things. And he deals with hatred and adultery and marriage and our enemies and our willingness to serve other people and giving to give versus giving to be seen. And, and he deals with the right way to pray and the wrong way to pray. And 
um, the right way to fast and the wrong way to fast. He deals with these different religious acts that fuel our sense of self-righteousness and then the way that God views them. All the while, in every one of these cases, saying, this is what I want your life to look like. This is my standard. This is how I see this. And so we need to work then to make that the way that we see those things and the way that we live our lives. And now, Jesus brings us to the topic of money and to dependence on money. And really, more than even money itself, he brings us to the object of our trust and our security. And we'll see from verses 19 through 24 more of a focus on on money and worldly treasure. And then in verses 25 through the end of the chapter, we'll see the conclusion of that exhortation, which is really more about trust. I I know I spent some time this morning, again, here at halftime of the Sermon on the Mount, so that we can really evaluate again, am I willing to bring myself under the authority of this teaching? Am I willing to allow the Holy Spirit to convict me of these different things and to bring change in my life? And so Jesus says here in verse 19, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In a similar format here, Jesus refers to the negative first, stating don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Instead, store up treasures in heaven. What's the difference? What are the types of treasures that Jesus is referring to? Well, treasures on earth are really, it's just about anything, quite frankly, that is of this world. Mostly, or oftentimes, it is going to be of a material nature. But it's just about anything in this world that you spend your time and your energy on collecting or amassing or developing. And the fact is, you can't take anything with you when you die. You know that, right? It's often been said you've never seen a hearse out there towing a U-Haul trailer. It's just not going to happen. That's foolishness. Listen, all the pyramids, all the famous tombs of these wealthy people who were buried with their treasures, where's their treasure? It's in their tomb, right where they put it. And things are destroying it. Moths, if it's material, moths are eating it up. And if it's, if it's metal, it's rusting away. It's being destroyed. And so you get the picture there. It's pretty easy for us to understand this. But the question becomes, what is it for you? What is your treasure that you may be inclined to give yourself to? Is it straight up money? Your bank accounts? Investments? Is it something else? Is it cars or toys? I mean, is it crafts? Is it books? Is it, it can be any number of things if we're honest with ourselves. Things for your home? Do you spend an inordinate amount of time and energy amassing things that have no eternal value? Instead, we're called to store up treasures in heaven which really becomes for us this morning, that's the real question then, right? Well, how do we do that? And it would seem here that the answer would be really, if don't do this, don't store up things here. Well, it's the opposite of that then. Meaning, give those things away. Get rid of those things. If we are not to collect things here, to store things up here, then it would suggest to us that we should be resisting the urge to do that very thing, right? And so we should be more about collecting little and living very generously. And Scripture, of course, confirms that throughout. I'm going to go quickly here. Mark 10, 21. Jesus is talking to the rich young man. He says to him, One thing you lack. 
Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And Luke in chapter 6, verse 20 says, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Woe to you rich, for you have received your consolation. The poor, your treasure's in heaven. It's there. The rich, sorry, you have your reward. Luke 14.33, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 18, verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 12.15, a person's life does not consist in the possessions that he has. Luke 12.33, sell your possessions and give alms, provide yourselves with purses in heaven. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Luke 21, verse 1, Jesus saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and he said, truly I tell you this poor widow has put in more than all of them because she gave of all that she had. Luke 12, 20 and 21, but God said, and this is to the man who was building bigger barns, he says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Luke 9, 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he says, follow me. Jesus does not shy away from calling his disciples. Mind you, that's you and me. If we endeavor to follow him, He doesn't shy away from calling us to radical living. Why? Well, he tells us, because where your treasure is, there is where your heart will be. And Jesus wants our hearts. He wants to be our treasure. So the question becomes, Christian, where is your heart? Jesus goes on to say in verses 22 and 23, he says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this could seem like a random statement here, but it really fits. There is a saying in ancient Judaism that you are not to have an evil eye. And really that statement speaks of someone who is covetous, desiring of other people's possessions, desiring things that they shouldn't have or that they don't need. Now, good and bad here can be translated clear and healthy or evil and unhealthy, respectively. So in line with your heart being where your treasure is, with your eye as a window to the soul, what have you set your sights on? What have you filled your life with? What have you set your heart on? What have you set your gaze upon? Friends, what are you in pursuit of? can I tell you that if it is of this world, it will never be enough. It will never satisfy. And you will waste your life and impact your eternity. Now, I'm not saying there isn't wisdom in savings, okay? I'm not saying there's not wisdom in budgeting or achieving certain milestones with your retirement planning, for example. But to what end? Because here's the reality in the next verse. In verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is incredibly clear here. You can't do both as much as people try. 
Now, mammon is money personified. It, it takes money and it makes it something that can be a master. And it's been said money makes a terrible master. The fact is you can only have one master. And it can't be God and money or the things of this world in place of money. And so this should be concerning to you if you're one who thinks maybe you've been a little too in pursuit of worldly things. If there's anything in your mind as it pertains to this world that you're thinking, you know, I give myself to that a lot. I spend time and energy. It's, it's something that takes up a good bit of my time. You should be concerned. You should say to yourself, if Jesus has made it clear here that I can't have two masters, have I made this other thing something that a master, have I brought myself under it? And the consequence there is, and, and pushed God aside. You see, you're either serving the things of this world, and God is an afterthought, or you're serving God. Now, God uses money. In fact, he often blesses those who are surrendered to him and have proven that they will live generously. God, I believe, does put money in their hands to be stewarded well. Now, be careful because we don't give to get, okay? And God knows your heart. But I've seen it time and time again. We're very generous people who steward their money while God just keeps giving them more. And they just keep giving it away and giving it away. And I'm also not suggesting that there isn't some allowance in Scripture for a possession for, or for, for leisure. But has it become the object of your pursuit? Now here's the thing, oftentimes when we talk about becoming a slave to money, people think of the richest person they know and they think, yep, that's them. Because they have all this fancy stuff. But me, I'm just trying to make it. And you convince yourself that because you're not trying to buy a boat, that you're not guilty. But notice in the following verses that Jesus doesn't talk about life being more than boats and being more than vacations. Though certainly that would apply. You can make an argument for that. But no, he brings it down to the most basic level and he implicates all of us. Because you see, it's often, I have this bill I need to pay or these basic things I need to get for work or for school or whatever, and then that creates stress and it creates worry and anxiety, and then this is really what Jesus is getting at. There's a lot of people I know with nice things and they're not worried, they're not tied to it, they don't care about it. And of course, some are quick to say, well, because they have the money, they don't need to be worried. Okay, you just go ahead and you keep arguing that, right? instead of listening to what Jesus is saying to you. Yes, oftentimes it is in the absence of money that this begins to really present itself. But it's also that point when we begin to perceive some sort of risk of not having something and then we really begin to grow concern and we begin to worry. And yes, Jesus is addressing money here. We could take the money portion on its own and just look at that and, and identify a principle for how to handle money. But I believe these two things go hand in hand. And so it's not just about money, but it's also Jesus, as in every other part of this sermon, where he goes, I want to deal with your heart. I want to deal with how this impacts this. And I know right now in our world, I mean, people are beginning to grow increasingly concerned about different things. We know that we may be on the edge of something that really tests our faith in this area. If you don't think that we could, in a moment, be in a massive financial crisis in this country and in this world, you haven't paid attention. And you're living with your head in the clouds. If your trust is in your bank account, if your trust is in the stock market, that can, that can change in a moment. 
and with the potential of financial crisis and with unemployment on the rise throughout our country, there is uncertainty in our world as it pertains to those things. And I know that people are beginning to worry. Many of you may be beginning to worry. And Jesus says this, verse 25, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. In our world right now, circumstances are such that we're a little more focused on the basics, okay? More so now than maybe a year ago, people are a little more focused on like, have you seen the price of meat? Have you been able to get a steak this week? I hear coffee. I hear there might be a coffee shortage. God help us, right? We're thinking about some of those things. Toilet paper. People are stockpiling it. Right? Nobody's been able to figure it out yet. Where's all the toilet paper going? Who's buying it all? We're, we're focused a little more on basics because there's a concern that we won't have some of these basic things that we need. And this is where Jesus brings us back to because at the end of the day, all of those fancy things start to disappear really quickly when some of those basic necessities are threatened. But isn't it amazing that God calls us to say, hey, about your basic necessities, would you trust me? Times of trial have a way of, of, of doing this and, and we begin to dismiss the lofty and the more frivolous of things and we begin to say, what about the basics? Are we okay? And, and this is good because amongst a few things that we've learned now through the Sermon on the Mount, we know one of the things that, that we need to kind of adopt into our lives is a dependence on God. People talk a lot about a childlike faith. You know what a childlike faith is? It's having a dependence on on God as a child. It's not about ignorance. It's not about just sort of dismissing things and going, oh, whatever, I'm a kid. I don't. Kids think, okay? Kids are smart. Childlike faith is because kids also, though, look to their parents and say, I need you. I depend on you. If I want to eat today, I'm looking to you. Where are my clothes? Mom, where are my clothes? Right? I mean, that's what happens. It's about dependence. Jesus also, he gives us instruction on how to pray. And if we are praying properly, we know that we are praying with a sense of dependence. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus didn't teach us to pray by saying, Lord, give me a stockpile in my basement so that I can survive for years on end without support from anybody else. No, he says, this daily bread. Lord, would you give me what I need today? He goes on to say, is not life more than food Verse 25, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. The birds aren't planting seeds. They're not reaping a harvest. They're not building barns. They are daily depending on provision. He says, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Look at the birds, guys. Look at the birds. Do they seem worried? We are eternal. The pinnacle of creation. Go back to our Genesis study the past couple of weeks. We are made in his image. Differently than the birds. You know there's a saying out there. It's called, ah, that's for the birds. Where's that saying come from? Because if this is worthless and I don't need it and I don't need to spend any time on it, ah, that's for the birds. Yet here Jesus is saying, look at the birds. Those things that you're like, ah, whatever, I don't need this. It's garbage. Give it to them. He's saying, they're taken care of, aren't they? They're doing fine. Nobody says, ah, that's for the humans. Has anybody ever said that? It'd be, it'd be foolish. You'd say, what do you mean? 
As for the humans, you know, it's garbage. Like you're a human. You're kind of like right here when it comes to the order of things. But yet we forget all about it when we feel like we, and when we fear that we might be in need of something. How much more do you think God cares about you than all the stuff out there? Now, when we read this, you more skeptical ones may say, yeah, but animals and people, they sometimes die because they don't have these things. We live in a world that people aren't clothed and people aren't fed. And so what's happening? You know, sometimes people die. And, and to that, I would respond, Christian, where do you go when you die? So stop thinking about this world as your home. And some would say, oh, well, that's a cop-out. You see, there it is again. Heaven heaven is a crutch, and it's this whole escape from reality and and, and an escape from the real troubles that we're facing. And I want to know that God will feed me in this life if I need fed. And, And listen, I'm inclined to say that most of the time, he will. Most of the time, he will. I've witnessed in my own life miraculous provision over and over and over again. But the question is here, as Jesus poses it, isn't life more than food? In the body, more than clothes? You see, we are to think more spiritually minded than what we do. The world is not your home. This is not it. And maybe to the unbeliever, that just doesn't cut it. But by golly, to the Christian, you must begin to shift your focus and your mindset beyond this world. To some of you, you are spending far too much time worrying about tomorrow and worrying about all the things that you've convinced yourself that you need because you have also convinced yourself that this world is your home. Jesus says in verse 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? How many of you have accomplished something through worry? Oh, how'd you do that? Well, I worried. Oh, really? No health or motivational expert or life coach or pastor or anyone says, hey, you should worry more. Right? Hey, how about this? Start your day with worry. Or nobody's seen recently a New York Times bestseller, 10 Ways to Worry More. Have you? If you found it, it's satire, okay? Don't read it for a good laugh. Yet, here's the thing, we're experts at it. We don't need a coach on how to worry. We do it really well, all on our own. And we give ourselves to it so often. And you know what? You worry about stuff that hasn't even happened. That's what worry is. You give yourself to anxiety over potential difficulties or troubles. Potential. And some would say, well, sometimes the troubles are real. Yes, there are real difficulties. I'm not discounting that, but it doesn't change the fact that what you're worried about is what may happen because of those difficulties. And oftentimes then at the expense of actually doing something about the very trial that you're in. And here's the thing, when you're in the midst of that trial, do you know what's happening? You're getting through it. Maybe not as fast as you want, but you are getting through it. God is seeing you through it. Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, the richest and wisest man who ever lived, I added that in there, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Look around at creation. Does he not care for it? And that truth 
That reality should be an encouragement to you, Christian. Not just even an encouragement, but a major factor in your attitude of peace and contentment where you can say, I know I'm going to be okay. I rest daily in the reality and the truth of a sovereign God over all creation who is seated upon the throne. Verse 31, therefore do not worry. How many times does Jesus say it? Do not worry. Do not worry. Do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. He knows it. Listen, when you worry... I want you to hear this. When you worry, what you communicate to God is, God, I don't trust you, and I need to figure out a way to meet my daily needs because you won't or you can't. I want you to understand that, Christian, and I'm dealing with myself here too, that when we worry, we are communicating to God, God, I don't trust you. God, you can't do this. God, I need to figure this out on my own. Now I'm thinking as I say that, that probably most of you really don't want to tell God that. And maybe in your mind you think, no, that's not it. That's not what I'm communicating to God. But you have to realize that that is what your worry communicates. And if that's you, you need to begin to repent of that. And just begin to offer that to God. Even be honest with God. It's okay. okay. He's a God who loves you. It's okay for you to even just say, Lord, I'm worried. And I know that doesn't please you, Lord. I know that's not what you desire, but God, if I'm honest, I, I'm worrying here. And so, Father, help me. Help me with this. Help me to just give it over to you. Help me to trust you. That's okay. Be honest with God. Now, this is not suggesting also, by the way, that you get to just sit at home and wait for money to come in the mail or food to just magically show up in your refrigerator, although God could do it. And God sent me money before. He sent us money. Money was just like, we, we needed this, and where did it come from? got in our car one day after church and this was a while back and this is when I was a youth pastor and Ashley and I were just getting started right we get in the car open up the the center console there's just money sitting in there where did the money come from who broke into my car I had the keys I had the keys right here who got in my car and just put money there that we needed I mean God God does miraculously provide but listen there is responsibility on our part When you consider the whole counsel of God, you see that as a Christian, you're called to work hard, to be disciplined, to plan, to save, to tithe, and so on, to trust then that with your daily needs that God will take care of you. Lord, it's not a a quid pro quo. It's not, well, God, I've done this, then you need to do this. But there is an asterisk of saying, God, I'm being obedient to your word, and so I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of these things. And so this should be encouraging. Convicting, perhaps, yes, but also encouraging because here Jesus is saying, guys, You have a Father in heaven who loves you. And He knows you have needs. And that's not lost on Him. So trust Him. Depend on Him. Believe that He will do what He says He's going to do. In fact, don't even think about these other things, these basic things that you tend to worry about. Instead, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Jesus says pursue Him daily look to him to fulfill your needs spend time in prayer spend time in his word allowing him to direct your paths proverbs 3 5 and 6 making it your goal to live your life for him and he will give you everything you need to do his will and that should be our aim and oftentimes then if you're seeking to do things outside of his will 
then you're probably going to try and make that thing happen. You're going to be forcing it, right? And then you, you may have a need and that need's not being met because it's not his will. And then you, you begin to worry and so on, right? And then you begin to just kind of freak out and do all these other things to try and make it happen instead of bringing yourself back and surrendering to him and knowing that if you're doing his will that you can know he'll take care of it. That where God guides, God provides. And here's the other thing. Even sometimes, if it's his will that you suffer or that you die, he'll make a way. And that sounds absolutely crazy, right? But that's the truth. You can be confident that, that, that God, you'll give me what I need and you'll lead me. And so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe that life, it's eternal. And so there is no scenario where I'm following you and you leave me. I can trust that I will forever be with you, that we have an eternal mindset. Verse 34, he says, Therefore, do not worry. There it is again. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Listen, if you spend today worrying about tomorrow, what will happen? What will you accomplish? What will you accomplish? David Guzik says this. He says, God wants us to remember the past, to plan for the future, but to live in the present. That's what we're called to. And listen, there is never a day that has too much trouble that God cannot see us through it and give us what we need. Even when we have pretty bad days, right? You have bad days. There are days that have been filled with trouble. And guess what? You made it. And sometimes people say, well, how did, how did you do that? And you think back and you say, well, I, I don't know. I just kind of got through it. And, and you realize in hindsight, God, you, you gave me the strength that I needed for it. And you think to yourself, I don't know if I could go through that again. Or I don't know if I could go through what this person's going through. And the fact is that God gives us what we need in those moments. He gives us grace for the moment to get us through. And so you don't need to worry about those times, but just to focus on the day that you're given. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Isn't that encouraging? Christian, you literally do not need to worry. It will do nothing. So stop worrying. And listen, I, I'm of the opinion that that's not just about uh, a, a bill that needs paid, but, it, but it's about so many things. That to, it's, about, it's about COVID, and it's about the election, and it's about so many different things right now that I think we just need to seek Him and His kingdom and His righteousness and tell the Lord, Lord, I trust You. I'm going to look to You each day. To do, I'm going to do what I know I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to trust You. Friends, if we could do this, if we could start living, start living like we are citizens of a perfect kingdom and that we know the perfect king of that kingdom and that we know that that perfect king in that perfect kingdom loves and cares for the people of that kingdom. And if you live that way, there is no reason you won't live with peace, free of worry, giving generously of what you have, knowing that you're cared for. Amen? I pray that that's an encouragement to you here this morning. Let's Close in prayer. Father, we, we come to you, Lord, and if we confess, Lord, we worry a lot. That worry, Lord, is not pleasing to you. It's not glorifying to you. That worry, Lord, communicates a lack of trust even and faith in you. So, Lord, forgive us of that, we pray. We repent of that. That's certainly not our intention, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray, help, 
Lord, our unbelief. Help us to trust in you. For you, Lord, have always shown yourself faithful. And so, Lord, we're sorry for the times that we're faithless. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person watching this morning, those who will join later on, that, Lord, you do a work in our lives, Lord, that I think you are even doing right now, Lord. You're doing this in our, in our country, Lord. You're doing this in our community. You're doing this uh, in many respects, Lord, in the lives of, of many who are watching right now, I know, bringing us to a place, Lord, of dependence upon you. And not to punish us, but to teach us and to show us that what you say in your word is true, that you do love us, you do care for us, and that if we just depend on you, seeking first you and your kingdom and righteousness, Lord, you'll take care of all these other things. Lord, as painful as it might be at times, Lord, help us to develop that type of faith, to know from experience, Lord, that you'll care for us in that way. Because if we're a people that are dependent upon you in this way, not worried about the things of this world, not worried about these basic things that, Lord, you take care of, how much more energy, how much more effort, how much, how much more of us is now available to do those things, Lord, that you really call us to. So help us in this work, Lord, I pray. Help this church to be an incredibly dependent church, dependent on you. Father, we love you and we praise you. Hear our song now, Lord, as we close in praise. We come from a place, Lord, of, of genuineness, Lord, as we cry out and say thank you for who you are. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.